Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, welcome back to another episode of In the Landscape. I'm one of your hosts here in studio. My name is Kate Sadler and with me is my co-host, Charles. Good to be here. It is good to be here. We've uh, we've slowed down our pace of recording just a little bit so that we're doing an episode every couple of weeks that may change. We had some big break in December right around the holidays, but we wanted to be sure we're putting out new content for our listeners. We certainly enjoy this. And so we're, we're still coming up with new episodes and, and finding ways to get good information out to our listeners. So. Right. We love the feedback too, where people like, oh, yeah. have all the encouragement. It's fun. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But I mean, to even have we people appreciate that. check in on us. <laughs> we sort right. of went MIA for a minute there. You know, we're not obviously professional podcasters, although we hope we've put together a good show for our listeners. And we do run a full-time landscape design business, design and care. (laughs) And you're a certified arborist, which makes up part of our practice. And we're busy. I mean, we're small enough. I mean, there's only, there's like a handful of people that work in the company. We do a lot of partnering with other companies to fulfill different requirements. But when we get busy, I mean, it's all hands on deck. It is all hands on deck. And sometimes busy for a business can be trying to find new business. (laughs) Right, correct, right. So we have a lot of great projects. We're really excited to be able to do work in a variety of different locations and for different clients with different needs. But sometimes we are in that sort of down downswing where we're- Like the business development, we spend a lot of time, we had to do- I reach out to fellow professionals that we, we partner with professionals. And so I spend a fair amount of my time doing that to develop. Because when we were physically in the Northeast, I mean, I'd see people at conferences, mm. I'd be on properties, meeting the clients. We're not doing that. And a fair amount of business came about that way of seeing people eye to eye. Well, and especially because the business is supplementing or complementing what other other landscape professionals are doing. So, for example, someone may have done the design and installation of a beautiful project, but we're the ones coming in to help maintain it, you know, getting the boxwood in shape or, or rehabbing it or whatever. So much like if we're on a site, we may be looking at trees. We don't do climbing tree work. Right. So then we're in a position to kind of pass that on to our partners in, in that realm. It's that kind of cool ecosystem of business building. But like you said, I mean, it's it's been a lot different for obvious reasons. <laughs> and getting, like we talked about getting our, I mean, there's a business, like have your elevator pitch. Like oh, yeah. to describe like within a couple of sentences what you do. Uh-huh. And the developing it, the business to business, that's evolved. I mean, like now it's, it's working, you know, because it's getting... Or like a landscape architect does a designs a landscape, but explaining like what we do to help maintain that, like to keep the design intent alive, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. plants don't get overgrown or plants oh, yeah. don't decline. There's, I mean, plenty of people, landscape design professionals, they don't have that much of an. Interest. I mean, they do the design, and then they're on to the next project. That's so it's getting the words in front of people. Now, other designers stay involved, and so they do whether it's personal or professional, they have a big interest. Like, I want this mm, to succeed mm. and they stay involved. And so it's finding, it's getting the words right, right to communicate right. and then finding the designers where it's a good fit. Yeah, exactly. And right. we have had, like lately, there's been good success with that. Very good. 
Uh, yeah. All right. So I'm sure some of our, our professional colleagues on here, well, maybe whatever industry you're in can relate to learning how best to communicate what it is you do and then connecting with people. That's a big part of, I guess, human endeavor. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're definitely a part of that. But it all comes back for us mostly to plants, how the plants are doing. Well, people and how people interact with the plants. So like businesses. Mm-hmm is a very interesting organizational, you know, functional part of what we do. But really what we're excited about is getting in the landscape and making sure that we have this connection with the land and with, uh, with people who enjoy their landscape. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's what we want most of all. To that end, today's episode is actually about a specific type of plant. I know we sometimes have episodes that range from pruning tips to design principles. And today we're going to kind of hone in on the horticulture of a specific plant type that you might want to be using in your own designs, specifically grasses. Right. Right? They're very, I mean, very versatile. You think what's a sustainable material, bamboo. So you buy, whether it's flooring, I mean, I think even possibly textile, I think fabric might even be so bamboo is a renewable resource. It grows like a weed. It does. And it, <laughs> well, you want to be careful about planting it in your own yard as a design, right? Correct. Like, yes. But as like a renewable resource. And so bamboo is in the grass family. Yeah. So think of baskets, you know, throughout history have been made uh, from grasses. So grass is a very large family mm. and people have different relationships with, you might think of a golf course or a park that where grass is the largest quantity of plants. Yeah. And well, and where we're recording, which is in the United States, I mean, it's almost like the quintessential American residential landscape is dominated for the most part by grass in the form of mm-hmm. manicured lawns. That's how you know you've arrived if you've bought, you know, your home in the suburbs and you have grass out front, like a big lawn that's kind of doing nothing. It just sort of sits there. Right. Ecologically, Um, it's not beneficial. And there's, like, let's say there's fertilizers, pesticides, all kinds of interventions. Right. Well, and one of the reasons I think we wanted to talk about grasses is that they are such an ecological powerhouse. I mean, we talk about trees a lot, which have huge impact on oxygen production and habitat and things like that, shade, sun, you know, cooling your home. But it is confronting the use of grass in the traditional way without, there is something about the aesthetic that is like a a lawn is, you know, if you have this little cottage and the white picket fence, like the lawn can be pleasing. Not everybody wants like a a lush English garden with all of the, you know, flowers or hedges And so it's like thinking about grasses in a way that is not just negative, like, ah, rip out your lawn. Um, Like an orthodoxy, like, it's so bad, we can't have it. Or the other extreme, like, I don't care about ecology, I want it to look this way. Right. And we're suggesting some ideas. lots of compromises. Yeah, lots of compromises and some some ways of having fun with grasses. Because I actually, Mm -hmm. it's interesting, I think I'm less a flower person than a grasses person. Although grasses can have flowers. <laughs> we have, what is the grass you have in the backyard? Muley, pink? Uh, pink muley. Yeah. Which, is, so which the grass, is a Gulf Coast grass. The flowers on that are really gorgeous. And, and it's a pink. Uh, heathery. I, you know, <laughs> coming up with the right words, but, but like this soft, almost impression of flowers. Oh, right. 
And um, it's very striking. If you've never seen a pink muley grass, it's like stupendous. But there's something about the geometry of grasses, especially when they, you know, they can, they can grow in clumps. They can, there's like a spikiness to some of them. And, and I always think of beach landscapes. I grew up in California. I think I think of those tufts of like beach grasses as being really special mm-hmm. somehow. So anyway, I, I could probably go on and on about grass. Love the idea of the prairie. So we're going to touch on some design ideas. We'll try to name some species that you might want to uh, research further if you're thinking of different ways of incorporating grass. So where would you start if you had a client who wanted to do something different? They had a nice big lawn. They didn't necessarily want to get rid of it entirely, but they wanted to to change it up and, and use grasses in an innovative way. Okay, that's a great question. Well, like I did a foam design consult this morning. And so I started off, said, let's make sure we understand what is the program? What is your primary Mm. goal? Mm. So that's always a good place to start. Make sure that 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 is at least the primary goal is achieved, that you don't get into the fifth priority, which is so exciting. And then we didn't accomplish our main goal. (laughs) And that, you know, as much as I'm saying like lawns are are maybe less than ideal ecologically, they serve a function in terms of recreation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, soccer non-American football is played on <laughs> grass mostly. You know, like croquet. Yeah. Like sort of semi, then there's very active recreation. Then there's like sort of leisure. Mm. There's like, I mean, there's competitive at every level, but there's like tossing a Frisbee, uh, playing badminton, mm-hmm. sort of things, touch football. So I think saying program is really important because there may be areas where you do want to preserve a lawn type feel for the purpose of that recreation, because that does become a little bit more challenging if you have, you know, waist high <laughs> prairie grasses, <laughs> as beautiful as they may be, but that might not be uh, what, what your program calls for. So great program. Excellent. What's next? So then the scale. So I don't recall the designer, but it was, it's very catchy. So they, they were designing, I mean, like more or less like a high-end residential landscape I think in, in the end of Long Island, the Hamptons. And so the designer said, the clients want to mown grass. And the client said, it's, it can only be the amount that you're willing to mow yourself with a push mower, like a, like a real mower, not a gas mower, on the weekend. And he and was kind of kidding, but it was also like, how much do you really need? Mm. You know, if I'm mm-hmm. taking a portion, like how much am I going to really eat? Mm-hmm. I mean, my eyes might be so big. I want this. I want the whole pie. Well, like one piece is maybe two. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a pie lover. I know, right? <laughs> so, so if it's athletics, let's say it's a large property and the front yard is an acre and a half. And that's where, and there's, let's say there's hedging or a stone wall. I mean, for athletic fields, I've done that where I've researched what's the, the tournament for horseshoes or for, mm-hmm. you know, for different athletics. So really measuring out like what's, what are you going to do? How much do you need? And then working backwards. It's like, okay, we want like a third of an acre, which is like so many feet by so many feet. An acre is 200 feet by 200 feet, which is pretty huge. <laughs> That's a lot more than you'd need for, uh, for most sports. And then once you have, okay, well, let's agree on this, on the size that you want to be turf. And then the areas that's not mown turf could be grasses that you don't mow which is more or less like a meadow where it's maybe it's mowed once a year, which would keep down some of the, like the trees and shrubs from coming up. Mm -hmm. And then amongst that grass, 
or that sort of matrix, like what you'd see in a natural prairie, you have wildflowers that are growing up through the grasses because the grass is, is, is relatively open. It's not that dense when you have a meadow grass mm-hmm. that grows up to knee height, waist height. I mean, there's taller grasses and so forth through that matrix. And so that's still visually and programmatically, it's not heavy. It's not mm-hmm. a dense hedge. Right, right. Uh, and so let's say you're looking out from your home or your office or an area of grass that you're going to recreate on or gather on. Then adjacent to that, like we've seen in some of the parks in Texas do this now, mm-hmm. the areas where you don't recreate, instead of having shrubs, it's native grasses like big blue stem, little blue stem, buffalo grass. Mm-hmm. And then amongst those, wildflowers grow up. So then there's continuous, I mean, in Texas, almost 12 months of the year, there's some wildflower blooming. Mm, and the allergies that go with it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Actually, it's the trees right now giving me trouble. But yeah, so I do think when we think of program, uh, maintenance is a key, key consideration that is a part of the program. Is your program that you're home to mow the lawn every afternoon, you know, on, on a Sunday, you know, right. or, or is it to pay someone to come do that? Because that's definitely a big business. Or is that, you know, prohibitive, something you're trying to get out from under, in which case these alternatives might be a good choice. So if you're, let's say money's no object, like, oh, the lawn mowing, that's such a small, inconsequential cost. Well, there's other costs though. There's like the ecological cost. Mm-hmm. It's probably gas power. So that's causes pollution. There's sound pollution. Oh, so that's some the worst. These large For me, properties we work on. I mean, the poor people, you know, lots of these properties that we work on, they're old. So like the people that own it didn't decide we want, you know, 26 acres of mown grass. Mm. It's just sort of the default. That's what's there. Right. But it causes like noise pollution. So you're sort of sequestered in your home. You're not going to want to sit on your patio when it's being mowed and blown. And that's, there's a cost to that. Like, like the quality of life cost. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I so mean, grasses that you'd mow once a year, that's like one visit, not 40 visits. Mm. But I think it's an important to note that not all grass needs to be mown at every point in the year. So for example, oh, we've just point. sort of left our lawn alone. We do, I mean, we just, we're living in a standard suburban house. We've, we've planted some areas to not include grass, but we still have quite a bit ourselves, uh, you know, full disclosure. And thankfully we haven't had to do much with it over the winter. So what right. is it about grasses that results in this sometimes needing to mow, sometimes not? There's like a growing season and a dormant season, Hmm. like you'd have with shrubs and trees. The big categories would be, is it a warm season grass or a cool season grass? So in temperate climates, like the Midwest, the Northeast, the Pacific Northwest, when you have, you think of a green grass there, that's generally a cool season grass. So it means when it's cool, it's growing. So Mm. come April, May, depending where you live, it's still cool. It's bright green that new grass is coming out and then you know without watering your irrigation the cool season grass goes dormant when it gets hot or mm. turns brown mm. like we, so it's not dead it's just not it's green dormant, right like how <laughs> okay. like, the, like the leaves on the oak tree yeah turn brown mm. they've like they've done their photosynthesizing and the grass is more or less this it's similar where it's it's photosynthesized those roots you know, are, are storing the energy, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not a grass scientist. And it's basically resting. It's oh. saying, 
it's so hot. We're not going to even try to grow. Right. We're going to shut down. We're going to shut them like the, like the uh, plant, so to speak. And then when it starts getting cool again, which could be August, September, like depending where you live and there starts to be dew in the morning, mm. then it starts to grow again. Well, the nice thing about it is it's so interesting because that dormancy is unappealing. If you want a bright green lawn, that's like mm-hmm. the aesthetic. It's really neat though, when grasses are a part of four season interests as mm-hmm. you know, some of the longer stemmed grasses, because they can get a, a a nice gold or blonde color then that, that lasts throughout something like a, a long winter, right. even some of the seed heads. So you have the flowers we were talking about, those might turn into seed heads and then those are, are sticking around. So again, you have a different like propagation too. Yeah. The low seed, sweet seed heads will perpetuate more grass. Mm. If they're not, if that's what you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's that landscape. Remember we stayed in the Airbnb I don't even remember how long ago it was. Was it this past summer near Austin? Yes. It was like mm-hmm. north of Austin yep. and I think it was Hudo, Texas. Yes, you're right. I don't know if that's how you say it. And boy, that was so striking where it was like a family farm, sort of mm-hmm. farming ranch and they had different buildings on it. Yeah. And in front of the home, there was an area that was mowed, but a fair amount of it was not mowed. And it, But the grass wasn't that tall. I would say it was like, it was less than knee height. Mm-hmm. It was all blonde. It was definitely dormant. It was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but it was very striking. There were cedar trees and other evergreens that were coming out of it in this mm-hmm. expanse of blonde grass meadow. Yeah. Having grown up in California, that's a familiar pattern. So you have the bright green hills in the winter and the springtime, and then they turn blonde and beautiful in the in the hot season. And, you know, there it does become a bit, well, I think it's a fire fire-friendly habitat. And of course, uh, we all know that that can turn um, and be undesirable when when conditions are not great, but it's really kind of a lovely, you know, we, it's you don't have the same kind of four-season color changes because it's really just a, a cool wet season and a hot dry season. <laughs> right. so, um, so the grasses are a big part of that. And the change of entire hillsides is is the way that that gets reflected out there. So yeah, pretty massive cool. scale. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, a great resource we talk about quite a bit, the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. Mm-hmm. That's in the vicinity of Austin. They have a great description of how to plant a meadow, how to plant a wildflower meadow. I mean, grasses are like really the key component of a mm. wildflower meadow. If you just planted wildflowers, my guess is you'd have a lot of weeds. So the mm. grasses are this... They're like the filler. So you think of uh, like you're making pasta with a red sauce. I mean, it's like it's more pasta than it is red sauce, but the red sauce is the flavor, the interest. Mm -hmm. And that that would be, in my experience, that's like what a meadow is. It's mostly grasses and the wildflowers are a component of it. And those really more or less poke up through the grasses. But as far as foliage go, they're not foliage intensive. Mm -hmm. So if you do want to reduce the impact of your lawn, are there some species that are maybe, maybe they don't grow everywhere, but are, have less of, a, less of an impact or, or you don't have to mow them or something like that? Oh, sure. Good point. Well, fescue is a family of grasses to be familiar with. <laughs> There's all different types. Some of them, I don't know that they're all drought tolerant, 
But there's many types that are drought tolerant. So that is no matter what you want to do, if you want, whether it's a, a golf course or ecological meadow of fescue, it's not as vigorous. So if you're playing NFL football, I don't know that you want 100% fescue. <laughs> I could be wrong. Like it wouldn't grow back if it were sort of torn up by high traffic. Right. There's things where the roots mm. are more aggressive. No, I'm not. I'm not a grass expert. Actually, at Cornell, they have a, a turf and lawn, landscape major expert. So there's people that, because athletic fields and golf courses is a big part. That so there's so folks important. that are researching like to try to create better lawns that require less water. Mm-hmm. The USDA has, has a water-wise program. And so there's lots of great, depending what country you're in, there's a Google search would be water-wise lawns. And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of strategies. So fescue, there's fescue that you mow. And so if you buy sod or a seed mix, it'll have fescues off in one of the grasses. Mm-hmm. Then there's one that's all fescue. There's no mow fescue. So that would grow up to, maybe the height of that is maybe three or four inches tall. It gets sort of long and shaggy and then flops over. So for areas like the, the intensity of your use on the lawn is important. Mm-hmm. If it's, let's say it's like a retired couple, it's like pretty low impact. <laughs> so some of these no mow, there's grass that you could walk on. If you have, you're playing heavy duty athletics and mm-hmm. touch football and there's 15 grandkids and it's. And well, and even pet usage. Cause I know our dogs, <laughs> right. our dog has the same traffic pattern and she actually like runs like a ring oh, into right. the grass. So. <laughs> there's like a, there's a path on, yeah. on our outer fence yes, border, she right? Has to run, <laughs> run around and make sure the, the borders are secure. Right. Checking little for, yard. for uh, possums or wherever's out. Mm. Right. So depending on where you are in the world, there's ecological choices. And so fescue is one of the categories. Mm-hmm. The time of year that you seed a lawn is important. So generally it's, you almost, like you could definitely want to research it based on your area. When I've worked with like meadow consultants and other folks, you do it with some of that when it's, the summer is just peaking. Mm-hmm. Like if you're in the Northeast, it's in August, you're starting. So it's, it's almost at its hottest, but it's going to quickly start cooling down. Mm-hmm. And in Texas, I believe it's, you do the work in the winter because mm. it's, there's some moisture, it's cooler, and it has many months to get established. Although it is important to do your research for your area, because I, I do know that there's a great deal of uh, like fertilizing that can happen just as grass is going to go into the dormant season, just because it seems like it would be the right time to do it, but it's really going to have very little impact on the grass because it's not going to be growing. So just that little bit of, we almost take for granted that grass is like an easy crop or an easy, you know, plant medium to work in because it's so ubiquitous. It can be one of the most difficult. It's very challenging actually. To really get it right. And, and possibly because a lot of the stuff a lot of the care is just done by rote and it's, it's not actually, you know, necessarily based on the species or the climate conditions or whatever. It's just like, Oh, it's just a lawn, just cut it and fertilize it. It'll be fine. So, right. And I mean, the yeah. fertilizers like run off, mm. go into the water supply, cause pollution. So like Lady Bird Johnson sites, which I mean, it's my experience. If you're planting a native meadow, 
if you improve the soil too much, if you add topsoil and fertilizer, you're going to generally have a lot of weeds. You're going to get like a monoculture of weeds. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, meadows tend to grow, I don't know, if, if saying it's a poor soil, that might be an exaggeration, but mm-hmm. that's sort of their strength. Mm-hmm. That it's plants that are suited to that condition. They can tolerate the condition. There's not as much competition because it's a bit challenging. Mm. So like these native grasses that I've cited and the perennials. So you have to be very careful. If you make this perfect, delicious soil that you think you're helping it, those native species, they're not necessarily that competitive because they're used to poor conditions. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have weeds will come in that are much more competitive. Right. Now the life cycle is important. So if you're planting a meadow from seed, or even if you're, in some cases, you can buy plugs. So it's like small wildflowers that would, mm-hmm. you could fit this, this rooted wildflower or grass in your hand. Like some of the Texas nurseries I see, they'll sell flats, I think of 20. Mm-hmm. So it's like 20 coneflower, 20 muley grass. And so they're going to be maybe the size of a Dixie cup, each little plug. Mm-hmm. So if you're using that route or seed, it's about three years is the magic number. So the first year, the perennial grasses and, and flowers, the roots will be doing a lot of work. The foliage, not as much. Mm. So it's, it's more or less will take three years for it to become quite vigorous. Mm-hmm. So to keep the weeds down, there are annual flowers and annual grasses mm. that are very vigorous. And so those, in some cases, will only really last for a few years. When you buy, as I understand it, some of the wildflower folks I chat with, when you buy a wildflower mix, seed mix, like the average person buys it, uh, which is readily available, in some cases, it's mostly annuals. Mm -hmm. So it looks amazing the first year or two, and then they die out. Mm. So you want a mix of of the flowers and grasses that will return that are perennials, which tend to be slower growing. Mm. So there's not a lot the first year or two. And then it even says, so this is like Lady Bird Johnson, Wildflower Foundation, that by the third year, managing the growth with with a controlled wildfire burn is possible. And now that's like they say, of Don't course, do that in your backyard. Right. <laughs> Have an expert, consult an expert. And so See when, if your homeowners association is on board. <laughs> I call your insurance, you're gonna do what? <laughs> so there and the, it could I mean you could start a wildflower wild fire if you're adjacent to wild land so it's not it's very very serious yeah i think they're probably talking to like large organ like municipal or or government organizations that have the wherewithal because i do know when i lived in california you'd see controlled burns all the time so but like like the why would you do a burn is is important and interesting so it's so you'll have so invasive species crop up that could be native or not native that are overtaking that eventually will overtake the beneficial species. Mm-hmm. So the, the controlled burn will eliminate those. And then if you want it to stay a meadow with grasses and wildflowers, they'll start like shrubs and trees will start growing up. Like in Texas, when I visit properties, the, the uh, sweet gum, I mean, those sweet gum seedlings and pine seed seedlings are, are everywhere in a mm-hmm. meadow. So the controlled burn is a very easy way to get rid of those. And then some of the, Wildflower and grass seeds are fire dependent. Yeah. So they're pre- so when 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 they are 
heated up, they are poised for success, you know. Yeah, they know their competition's gone. That's right. No <laughs> competition. Take it out. All right. Very good. Anything else to to mention in this episode about grass? We're just sort of targeted here, kind of kind of addressing the idea that maybe maybe we think differently about grasses or find a way to introduce that to our design clients, just because there there may need to be alternatives to grass, whether we like it or not because of things like drought and and stuff. And so Mm -hmm. you might be in one of those regions of the world where you have a brown lawn because you're not allowed to water it. You know, water restrictions are sometimes imposed and that, you know, that green isn't going to be around forever. So do we, do we just learn to live with that or, or, you know, maybe some of these ideas or ways of, of circumventing that or innovating around, you know, changes. So. Right. I mean, I would like some of the big takeaways would be to really carefully consider how much lawn do you need on to walk on or to recreate Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And maybe you don't need any. So this wildflower and taller grass area is amazing. It's like it's attracting pollinators, insects, birds. It's changing throughout the season. So the the colors of it are changing. It's kinetic. It's moving in the wind. Mm. So having a mown area that you do use mm-hmm. for however you choose. And then a border that is not mown. That is another, mm-hmm. the Houston and the Texas parks are doing that more and more. And it's, mm-hmm. to me, it's gorgeous. It's, it's welcoming. It's like, Oh, I want to have a picnic on this lawn. It's actually more beautiful. I find. And then there could be shrubs and trees are part of that. So mm-hmm. if whatever your lawn area that you're currently mowing, even if you reduced, even if 20% of it was not mown and it was mm-hmm. an outer border, and on some bigger properties, it could be maybe you only need 20%. We're actually like only going to use 20%, and the other 80% could be in the background where there is, there's uh, finches and, and birds that are zipping in and out mm-hmm. and uh, all kinds of pollinators. So it actually is an asset, and it's, and it's lower maintenance. Neat. Okay. Well, uh, grasses, near and dear to my heart, a fun topic to talk about. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about grasses or any ideas that we didn't talk about or your own grass pictures. You can always share with us on social media. We love that. And so as we've entered a new year, we had a little bit of a new idea for our last little segment, which is kind of like what's on Charles' bookshelf. (laughs) Trust me, if I were reading landscape-related materials, I'd be happy to share them. So it's not just Charles specific, but it just so happens that your your library is a little more relevant to our topic here on the podcast. So so what have you been reading? What's of interest? Okay. So a book that I've spent a fair amount of time, the work we're doing, we don't do a lot of work in California, but we get calls more and more from folks in California and there's different consulting arborist projects that are out there. So I'm and my dad's of, out there. Your, your dad, <laughs> and I'm right. from there, so it's kind of nice that you're getting up to speed on. Yeah, we love California. California. I mean, it's such a special culture landscape. Mm. So, the book in particular that I've been reading, so I wanted a sort of an encyclopedia of California woody plants. Mm. So, there's a book, Trees and Shrubs of California, by John Stewart and John Sawyer. That's University of California Press at Berkeley, mm-hmm. I think, and. So what's so neat about that is it's it's by a region. And hmm. the the regions, I mean, California is somewhat of an island. Now, some people would say 
culturally or socially. That's a whole other <laughs> category. <laughs> but there's mountain ranges that isolate it from the rest of the country. And then there's an ocean. Mm-hmm. There's deserts that isolate it. There's rainforests. So the, I mean, there's some areas like the, is it Joshua Tree? Mm-hmm. That's in Southern California. Yep. Death Valley. Some of those areas, it's like between zero and six inches of rain a year. Mm. And then there's areas, some of the coastal rainforest areas, I think it's over a hundred inches of rain a year. Mm-hmm. And so it's just astounding. Then the, there's plants in all those areas. Mm-hmm. Some of them are fire dependent. So I really enjoyed that. It'll go, it'll go through a species and then like where it appears in the state, even on, on mountain ranges, one side of the mountain range is, is a rainforest. The other side is a desert. Yeah, they have uh, the microclimates. And so, like, even, what was that big, there was a big wind event that just hit the Yosemite Oh, oh right, all those trees. And huge, giant sequoias came down, which apparently is is not uncommon for the end of their life cycle. But, you know, you have these steep mountains and the winds coming off of them, creating uh, just kind of a force that... (laughs) These It's like a canyon or a pass. Mm. I think where the the wind concentrates too. Mm-hmm. I think, I think yeah. I've read. So I tend to do that. Like the best way to learn about something is really to give. Like I was on an oak kick, which was <laughs> when that. we first met a number of years ago. Pin oak. Pin oak. oak. <laughs> Swamp oak. Chestnut oak. So it, maybe somebody would say it's obsessive, or it's the best way to really learn. When I started one of my early jobs was with landscape a landscape architecture practice that was part of a nursery. Mm. And that's where I learned that there's more than one kind of boxwood or I remember a viburnum being feeling so daunting, uh, daunted, you know, mm. that, Oh my gosh, there's all these species. And well, you just start learning. Okay. There's like, here's the families. Mm-hmm. And then within that, okay, there's like four main groups of viburnum. And then, then there's subsets and same with the oaks. Mm-hmm. And so this book about California, Laura, it is a little daunting, but you start learning the patterns and the families of plants. And then when you get out in the world, you see it and you think, I think that's in this family. I don't know what subset that is. And you look it up, mm-hmm. take a picture. There's lots of um, Facebook groups and other groups where it's plant identification. Some of it's by region. And I'll ask questions. I'll say, what is, what is this? Then mm. people chime in, you know, oh, it's got to be this. Oh, it's not that. And that, that's how I build, up, build the knowledge. Great. Well, uh, for all of you other lifelong learners out there, <laughs> hopefully some of these book recommendations are are a good fit for your next reading project. And um, I think that's about it for this episode. So we look forward to putting together something else for you in the next couple of weeks. And again, if we if we get back up to a, a more frequent schedule, we'll certainly let you know, or if we can find ways of giving bonus content in between. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. always like trying to innovate in the field of podcasting, but you know, life is, is lifey. And so we're, we're working through that too. So anyway, thanks again for tuning in and uh, we look forward to speaking with you sometime soon. Very good. All right. Until next time. Thank you. Bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at king.com.
gardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, and also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.